0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better.
2: I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show Because to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious.
0: Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at
3: HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corrin.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan turkel here today with Ron Pepraki. See, we're going to talk about chocolate in a second. We're going to talk about pastry desserts, maybe even some Bamkuchen. But first, we're going to talk about landscape design. And you're, you're going to figure it all out in a second. But Rochester, Rochester, New York, does it have food? Because it seems like this place between, what, Beef on Weck and Buffalo, maybe some Anchor Bar Wings, and then the rest of New York. I mean, what what is culinary life like there?
1: Well, uh, we we have uh, Nick Taho's, which uh, is famous for their garbage plate.
2: (laughs) Tell me more about this garbage (laughs)
1: plate. Nick Taho's is, first off, a place where you would go uh, around 4 a.m. in the morning uh, when you were done with your bar crawl. And uh, you would order either a, a garbage plate with hamburger or hot dog, and what that consists of is two pieces of that meat, uh, served with a side of macaroni salad, uh, hash browns, and this really dark hot meat sauce, kind of poured all over. And uh, that's, I would say, is very iconic Rochester.
2: It's it's amazing to now. Describe something as a dark, hot meat sauce. I mean, being the pastry chef at Gotham Bar and Grill, how often would you get away with that little a description? <laughs>
1: uh, not too, not too often. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, you warded off food, and you worked <laughs> in landscape design. Correct. Um, I mean, this was a decade of your life before you even ventured into pastry arts. Absolutely. Why?
1: Well, uh, you know, growing up in Rochester, there's certainly you're certainly limited to either the outdoors. Uh, or staying inside and and my parents uh, actually had we had uh, five acres of land and uh, half of which was woods and half of it uh, was what we cultivated and so uh, at an early age I, don't, I have no idea why my father got me into uh, plant identification so we would walk through the woods and pick up a, a leaf or show me a branch if it was in the winter and say, what is this? And be, I don't know, it's a stick. I don't know, it's a leaf. It's a brown leaf. Uh, but uh, definitely persistent and, and uh, went deeper into that until I was able to identify plant material. Uh, pretty good. And I got to liking it. And certainly that took off into, well, I'd like to get a job. And <laughs> uh, and that's that's kind of where I started into the foray of landscaping
2: yeah we all try to parlay those those lessons into some kind of commerce but i mean landscaping y- you did enjoy i mean the methodology behind having this you know vacant piece of land and then creating this this scene it's very similar i think to the methodology of you know plating, plating. a dessert
1: exactly exactly you know when, when i was into uh residential landscape design in rochester uh I, you know as we discussed earlier, where I would meet with the potential client and uh, you know discuss their landscaping needs or wants or what the, what they like or dislike, and uh, find a solution to their to their landscape problem, and uh, would create uh, a very uh, nice almost holistic sense to kind of complete. Uh, and soften their home and, and their yard.
2: Yeah, did you have signatures? Did you have certain things that you would always there, put along? There
1: were certain plant materials that were in my playbook that I, that would uh, tend to reappear.
2: Yeah, you weren't like a, a African sorghum grass guy <laughs> or you, you fescue because it grows so quickly.
1: No, no, no. I think at the time, uh, blue star juniper was a big fan. Uh, Kwanzan cherry, you know, it's an ornamental cherry tree that had a very nice double pink flower in the springtime. Uh, you know, certainly in Japanese uh, red leaf maple, uh, I think those were a few of the the hits that uh, seemed to kind of touch or evoke everyone 's senses in their in their yard that yeah. I like to repeat
2: so so why did you vacate this profession and look towards pastry arts? I mean you, you went to Germany
1: absolutely you know uh, I had always loved baking, and that even started before uh, you know I got into to landscaping professionally and I think it was around age seven, eight, and nine. Uh, you know, both my parents uh, were working. I think I think it was about the time my my mom went back to work from raising three children. I was one of the three, and so we would have the house to ourselves, and we would grab the Fannie Farmer cookbook and we would start baking and making a big old mess. And, you know, one of the the things is that we loved making just simple sugar cookies, oatmeal cookies. And uh, it was just really the satisfaction of starting something almost from nothing, just from a handful of ingredients and then creating it that really excited me personally as a child.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about how being a pastry chef in Germany works, because I think that's interesting, too. Yes. Because you not only go to school. Uh, you have this apprenticeship. And within that apprenticeship, you only do so much.
1: Exactly. Uh, so I was lucky enough to, to do a full-on apprenticeship program in Germany. In Germany, it was called an Ausbildung. So I did an Ausbildung als Konditor. And a Konditor uh, is, a, is a pastry cook or pastry chef. And so first you would have to find a a cafe or a conditorei that would sponsor you to go to school. And once you would do that, they would uh, provide five days of employment for you, and also you would have to work... I'm sorry, you would also go to school twice a week. And so it was a combination of practical knowledge as well as, uh, you know, school knowledge.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to tell you all the German desserts or pastry desserts that I know. Sure. I mean, there's Berliner, which yes. is that whole JFK misunderstanding. Exactly, but I am Berliner. Baumkuchen, because my, my wife's last name is Krigbaum, yeah. and people refer to her as Baumkuchen. Yep. Yeah. Uh, how do you say, Schwarzwalder... Yeah,
1: uh, it's Schwarzwalder Kirschtorte. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a it? Black Forest Black cake. Black
2: Forest cake. My, my favorite cake that I've ever converted into a cookie. Uh, Lebkuchen. Lebkuchen. Uh, Pfeffernuss.
1: Pfeffernuss. And stolen. And stolen.
2: And th- that is that is my, my German food lexicon sure. right there.
1: Well, those are all the hits. Yeah,
2: <laughs> the greatest hits album. Yeah. Were were those things that you learn in your apprentice, or are they things that you have to kind of research outside of that?
1: Well, you know, uh, first starting with the uh, Schwarzwalder Kirschtorte, uh, believe it or not, it was a. Uh, a specialty, pretty much wherever I ventured in Germany, uh, there. Whether you're in one konditorei or bake shop or another, you'll always see that in some variation. And uh, that that was one cake that I learned at my uh, place of employment. That was very classic, but very delicious. And uh, there's certainly a lot of other variations of. Of that, and uh, I've, I've seen in Bavaria in my travels where some candida eyes would put uh, de- desiccated coconut in there as well, which I thought was always a little strange. But I'm um, like I'm more of a classic uh, person that likes things that are very traditional way. But uh, Stolen, Chris Stolen, for example. Uh, never knew the recipe from where I worked. Uh, the owner would have all the ingredients. You know, When, when we came into the uh, the bakstuba into the bakery kitchen in the morning at 4 AM, he would unlock the door, and all the ingredients would be set out on the table. And then we would just have to combine them all. So that was a very secret recipe. And uh, I eventually figured some of it out, but uh, not all of it.
2: I mean, moving back to New York, you obviously there's not the biggest German enclave here in fine dining, though there are some outlets. Right. What of that education did you take to New York and implore in places like Gordon Ramsay, which you worked, um, and then eventually at Gotham?
1: Yeah. Well, the first the first job I held was um, back in 2004 at Financier Patisserie, and uh, there I was brought on to to bake. A lot of the breakfast pastries. And uh, in Germany, we would say the Dauerbackwaren, which just means non-refrigerated bakery items, pastry items. And so from there, I, I introduced the uh, Mandelhornchen, which is an almond horn cookie. Basically, it's a one-to-one ratio of, uh, you know, we have uh, marzipan, uh, honey, and uh, sugar, yeah, mixed with some egg white to combine it. And then it, you roll it into uh, uh, some blanched, uh, sliced almonds and then bake them. And then you put a apricot glaze on after they're baked and then dip a third of it into tempered chocolate. And it was very popular. I introduced that to Francier and a couple other things as well in that in that dour varren line.
2: Yeah. I mean, were you happy to eventually get off that AM line and start working in more fine dining? Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and really, I, I started off in pastry, in, in, a, in a bakery, if you will, in a eye. and then I came to New York doing essentially the same thing, but under a French-trained chef. And you know, I always wanted—I was always looking to see what was beyond that in, into the restaurant field.
2: I mean, what was? What was beyond the patisserie? What were you missing out on not being in fine dining? Well,
1: and I would say energy, you know, really that rush of service. And uh, that was was definitely something that's lacking, in my opinion, uh, you know, in in the bake shop. You know, certainly around the holidays, especially if you're making pies for Thanksgiving, I think you can obtain a similar rush doing that. But uh, every night, every day, you know, in a restaurant, it's certainly a different environment.
2: And I also feel like when you work with something as classic as a patisserie, sometimes you lose out on seasonality. And you know the wonderful thing about Gotham Bar and Grill is that you're within striking distance of Union Square Green Market.
1: Yes, that's correct. You know, certainly in a pastry shop, you have your your base items, and and, and that brings people back. You know, they know that oh, okay, I can get a, a pistachio tort; and it'll always be there. Uh, and then and then that's their repertoire. Certainly, at a restaurant being so uh, close to Union Square, uh, now you're working off the seasonality of the ingredients, of all the fruits that are there, also the herbs. And, uh, you know, it, it definitely could be a little more challenging uh, doing that, but especially in the spring, in the early parts uh, after a long winter. But uh, it's certainly fun to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, you have a classic at. Gotham, that can never leave the menu, you know, the chocolate cake. Yes. But I mean, how do you put your touches? You're, you're dealing with what? A number one Zagat rated, uh, you know, three time, three star New York Times. There's such ingrained legacy in a restaurant. How do you come into a place like that and, it, you know, make it Ron's?
1: Very, very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the one thing that I was told in the onset of starting at Gotham was, uh, you know, make the menu yours do not touch the gotham cake (laughs) and so i did that and and really it's just uh fine-tuning something that's already great and uh from that point i really took took the chocolate to a to a new level and uh made made that uh finer
2: yeah well we're gonna take a quick break and come back and talk about what is it, 28 square feet of your chocolate room at Gotham Bar and Grill. Yes. Putting out some of the most fantastic chocolate bars in New York City and beyond. You've been listening to The uh, the Food Scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back.
3: Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and tours. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com.
2: Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Ron Papraki of Gotham Bar and Grill. And now, Gotham Chocolates. Um, What you just gave me, I couldn't be more elated with. Um, Six chocolate bars, you know, and, well, I'm not, I'm not, I shouldn't say that I've two packs of six because i was going to hide one but i can never get away with a lie but these these chocolate bars aside from having the most beautiful packaging and we'll get to that in a second um you know th- this was a passion of yours and, and brett's the uh, what is it general manager of gotham bar and grill yes. um trying to up the chocolate game exactly I mean, why why was chocolate such a fascination of yours and why did you think there was a market to to, to make better chocolate in new york
1: well, uh, again, uh, pastry chef, love loved to work with chocolate and always wanted to try to find a way to continue to work with it more and more. Uh, one, one thing that was a bit of a challenge at Gotham in the pastry kitchen was the uh, the heat. And uh, certainly uh, any any temperature over 80 degrees is certainly going to diminish the quality of chocolate. And uh, it was it was always a challenge to to try and do that at Gotham and about a year ago uh, it was a very cold I think uh, yeah it was uh, last, just last winter uh, not this past winter but the winter prior where it was the coldest February on record uh, our kitchen was super cold and uh you know we had people wearing turtlenecks in the kitchen and that's when I said okay let's start working with chocolate and uh, i always wanted to make bonbons i made them at gordon ramsay for in the fine dining area uh on the bonbon trolley and i started making them again
2: can you just say bonbon trolley one more time for me the bonbon trolley (laughs) that that is something i hope to aspire to you know just have a personal bonbon trolley
1: but but yes continue on yes uh so so that that gave me my first opportunity to start working with it i always wanted to work with you know continue to work with chocolate and i knew that i would be able to at some point at gotham and uh so once we started working with that uh we we um started selling them for that valentine's day and we were very successful Uh, we we figured if we sold 40 boxes we'd it'd be worthwhile to do it again we ended up selling over 300 boxes it overwhelmed us but in a positive way mm-hmm. not in a negative way and uh, then we just started sparking ideas and which kind of led to uh you know the the winter thaw and then it started to get warm in the kitchen we started to look where can i continue working and we looked at some you know uh, down the hallway where i used to have uh, my dry storage we looked at this area as being the best place to work with the chocolate so we clear all that out, and put in an air conditioning unit. Uh, put in some refrigeration curtains. Put in a sink nearby to make the health department happy. Don't
2: worry, the health department. Well, they may be listening, so that's good that you yeah. mentioned that.
1: <laughs> but uh, we're we're legit, yeah. and uh, you know, we've been making chocolate ever since you know uh, that February of yeah. fifteen.
2: So you, you you took this trip to um, Switzerland to yes. how do you say, Felclin? Uh, to Felkland. Felkland. Yes. Um, Talk to me about that style of cocoa bean and what makes their chocolate so special.
1: Well, you know, their, their chocolate, you know, they, they really, you know, f- very, very simply put, they they conch a lot of the chocolate that we're using on uh, traditional conch machines. And uh, it's a longitudinal conching machine, just like the old-fashioned Lint commercial that you may see. Uh, and... You know, the the quality of the beans that they're starting with is very high as well. And so a combination of a few factors of high quality and also very traditional methods uh, really lend to a really superior product.
2: Yeah, we were joking before. Is there a DRC cocoa bean? And you mentioned one. um,
1: I forget the name. there's the porcelana. Yeah. Then a white bean? There's a white, yes. And, you know, there's a lot of other beans... That, that fall on that high spectrum as well. Uh, this red bar, for instance, uh, we're calling it the wild bar. Uh, that's sourced uh, with 100% Bolivian uh, beans that are uh, foraged out in, out in the wild, if you will, uh, by the locals. And it's not a plantation uh, product. It's, it's just foraged. And the beans are very small. They, they don't offer a high yield, so it obviously it takes almost twice as much uh, of the collection to make a normal amount of, of chocolate.
2: See, you know, I always read these notes on chocolate bars where it's like, you know, Pure, powerful chocolate with light citrus notes. Um, at what point of the process do you start getting those flavor profiles?
1: Well, really, uh, the, the immediate, aside from what the, what the plant's doing in terms of, of the terroir, if you will, uh, where it's grown, uh, in the fermentation stage is really the initial aspect uh, from, from where the chocolate starts to take on its identity and flavor.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, as a pastry chef, especially one that has been using acidity uh, for so long, um, how, do, how do you get that acidity or how do you get such hom- harmonious balance within a chocolate bar so it's not so one note?
1: Well, it's, it's really through the fermentation as well as roasting. Yeah. And, and not overpowering it with an abundance of, of sugar or, or masking it with uh, vanilla aroma
2: so i'm looking at the the packaging as well and again we were talking before about how beautiful these things are and at first they kind of look between uh, a tanagram and that that children's book with the little mouse eric while i forget or the hungry hungry caterpillar um they're very graphic um but to you they're very new york
1: absolutely you know uh we worked with our our designer and uh gave her definitely a a lead into what direction we wanted to go and we, we mentioned frank stella as well as ellsworth kelly uh into that that new york uh you know expressionism of uh of art and you know she came back with with some of these ideas and we we morphed on that and uh you know one thing if you lay out the 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 six bars you'll see that each one is some representation of a g you know for for gotham uh at first sight i don't think many people capture that uh but their capital or lowercase g symbols
2: that's amazing no i mean i'm gonna say yeah i knew (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely when I first saw them. But, I mean, putting them together, it, it creates this collection that, that, you know, is based off of very elemental, simple things, color, form, flavor. Yes. But what you can do out of that, you know, after you have foundation, you have creativity. Um, how important is it to understand that
1: as a pastry chef? Uh, it's very important. And, and you really need to, to be forward thinking and you need, uh, you need to be creative.
2: Yeah, I mean, what do you do right now, aside from the chocolate, that you think is the most creative thing in your pastry kitchen?
1: Well, um, I, th- I think the, the menu is a balanced menu. Uh, and, uh, you yeah, know, we definitely have a lot of uh, very classic uh, desserts on the menu, as as well as a, a couple uh, forward-thinking, if you will. Uh, and one of one of the desserts I... Really enjoy on my menu right now is the Black Forest dessert because I've heard that before. Black yeah, right. Sh- yeah. <laughs> Schwarzwalder Kirsch. Uh, it's it has all the flavors of the Black Forest cake. However, it's not what you would expect it to be. Yeah, and uh, in, in something like that where there is that element of surprise uh, in a positive way, not in a negative way. Certainly, if it's in a negative way, you didn't do your job correctly. But uh, uh, that that is a way that I keep. You know, in a sense, uh, thinking forward by just always having a little twist on the menu, uh, but certainly wanting to uh, appease the masses in the process.
2: Yeah. And, you know, as a pastry chef, too, are, are you more towards old school methodology? Are you using marble to temper your chocolate or uh, are you looking towards, you know, future technology and, and mechanics that... Make desserts or chocolate making better.
1: Yeah, you know, I think when there, there's, there's there's definitely an approach that I have where uh, it was, I think it was back in 2009 or so when we had a lot of this Elber Adria uh, when his Natura book came out and everyone was yeah, kind of a, the masses of yeah. You know, there's still a lot of pastry chefs that knew about microwave cake, but it wasn't out into the masses. And so when a lot of this. Knowledge uh, in the use of technology that you wouldn't normally see in a pastry kitchen, even just something as simple as a microwave and an ISI, uh, you know, canister to to bake a cake and to really come up with something amazing, Uh, you know, things things like that were definitely very interesting to me uh, at the time. But now, as as I mature in my profession, I think that some of the more classic Desserts definitely have a place in today's uh, menu.
2: Yeah, I mean, which ones? Which which desserts and techniques within those desserts? Well, I mean,
1: souffle. Yeah, you know, straight 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 up uh, souffle. I, I think souffle is making a big comeback, and the way we do it at Gotham is the same way I did it at Gordon Ramsay, and it was all a minute. And uh, you know, there's ways where people. Uh, would would pre-make them and set them in the fridge. And when they're ready, you take them out of the fridge and you put them in the oven. And when we have a order come in, we immediately start whipping our egg whites with the sugar to make a French meringue. Uh, We're taking our our pastry base and we're warming it over a double boiler at our station. And uh, we fold the two together. uh, And then we line uh, the ramekin, butter, sugar, and fill it and bake it and we say please allow up to 20 minutes and uh, you know and sometimes we'll make two because if one fails we don't want the guest to wait 40 minutes so uh, something like that uh, is definitely challenging at times because considering the environment of the kitchen where it could be very humid and and warm but uh, you know it's very it's a very simple recipe and it's real, It's it's almost naked, if you will. There's not a lot of smoke and mirrors. It's the real deal, and and that's that I enjoy.
2: Yeah. So you you're saying you'll never open up a souffle truck?
1: No. <laughs> yes, I am saying that.
2: Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> but I I love what you said. That it is very naked. It is very pure in that sense. And you know, even making a crepe for the first time, or or making any of those base things and getting it so well. That's why we go back to these classics. That's why a place like Gotham Barn Grill exists. Um, you know, you, you, you stick to these foundations, you s- stick to these legacies, but, you know, it's those little tweaks and updates, and it's, that's where Old World meets New York. Yes,
1: I, I agree 100%.
2: Excellent. Well, then that's <laughs> it. <laughs> Unless there's anything else you want to say
1: no i think we're i think we're good
2: yeah well again check out gotham chocolates one of the most beautiful packages and stop by and order that 20 minute souffle at gotham bar and grill uh i apologize for saying that because whenever i see a menu and i see something that says we'll take 20 minutes we'll take 40 minutes i usually am i don't know whether or not to call myself an ass or you know someone that the kitchen likes i always order those things instantly
1: it's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. We, we think it's great when people order that. So yeah, it's... that was
2: the most litigious way of saying like
1: you're a little bit of an ass, but I still like making souffles. Well, 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 the secret is that it really only takes ten minutes. But uh... never
2: said that on there. You're gonna have to change your menu now. But stop by and see Ron's fantastic desserts at Gotham Barn Grill. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. A well. big uh, thank you to Corin for sponsoring Music by Cookies, as always, and David for engineering. You've been listening to The Food Scene on org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.